gather around tables like that, and there's the oldest and the youngest. They all gather on the table to share a meal. And I always think it's fun to watch a, a young child develop a sense of taste. Parents introduce something that's uh, that's sweet or sour, or spicy or savory, and you can kind of watch their face trying to figure it out. Different textures of food that they're there. And so that's when you see moms and dads, you know, making all those fun noises, you know, no, 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 no. Watch the airplane, open the hangar, you know. And we see that. Why do they go through all that? Well, they want good nutrition for their children, but they also want them to enjoy their food. You grow up after that, and you begin to make your own food choices. And maybe, maybe begin to leave out a few things like vegetables. In my case, there were, there were battles in our home over, over cabbage in any form. It wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't good. And, and the moms would plead, you got to eat good things because you are what you eat. Now, that little phrase always has brought strange things to my mind. So when you say you are what you eat, I think of, I think of Mel Kiper Jr., who is a football analyst for ESPN. Every morning for breakfast, Mel Kiper Jr. has an entire pumpkin pie. Uh, no crust uh, and only low-fat topping, but, but he has an entire pumpkin pie every single morning. Remember Willy Wonka? Willy Wonka, there was Violet Beauregard. She became a blueberry. You are what you eat. The principle is true. The food you put in your body will nourish and make you physically. The same thing is true of what you put in your mind. So think about it. What ideas or thoughts dominate your thought life? What do you, what do you chew on the most? The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So what you keep in mind will make you. Tighten the folks of that just a little bit. There's a pastor, preacher named A.W. Tozer, and he said this, What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In other words, everybody is a theologian. Whether or not you can name all the particular aspects of the doctrines of God, what you think about the most, what's your diet of thought about God, what you chew on the most about God will have a profound thing to shape you. That's true. Let's tighten the focus even more and ask this question. The question would be this. What do you think God thinks when he thinks about you? What do you think God thinks when he thinks about you? I've probably asked that question several thousand times over the course of the years to people. And, and usually when people hear that first, they'll hesitate a little. They'll, they'll stumble. It'll raise some emotion. But what they say next will reveal what they really think about God. What you think about what God thinks about you is the truth about God that you will taste and will begin to shape you in profound ways. We want to think about that this morning, how we're tasting the things of God. And we want to get at that by looking at a, a little-known story in 2 Samuel chapter 9. So have your copy of God's Word. Go ahead and open to the Older Testament. Uh, and find Second Samuel, uh, the ninth chapter. It's a story of a, uh, a man with the odd name of Mephibosheth. And the Bible's interesting. The Bible doesn't give us the truth about God in lecture uh, outline format. You know, most often it's telling stories. God's stories were meant to enter and experience and learn. Now, I know that most Sundays we, we stand and honor the reading of God's Word to make sure that we're recognizing our commitment to the authority of Scripture. Well, we're still going to do that kind of in your heart's morning. This morning I want you to hear this story. We're going to have the, the Lucas' cut.
come and help us. Dad, Marietta, and Tyler and Drew are going to help us as we uh, walk through this story this morning. I want you to simply enter into and hear the story of Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 9. So lean in and hear a really good story.
who is the true and better David, expressing the kindness and mercy of God to us. This is, in fact, a gospel story. So I want you to hear this this morning on two levels. I want you to hear the story of how David relates to Mephibosheth, and then I want you to see how Jesus relates to us and get a taste of what God thinks about when he thinks about us. Now, there's two main players in the story. There's David and Mephibosheth, two very different men from very different worlds. David, you probably know a lot about. He was the shepherd boy who tended after his uh, and protected his father's flocks. He was anointed or set apart by God to be the king of Israel. He was given a sense of favor, a sense of power and enabling from God. And soon after he was anointed, he became David the giant killer. Remember, he was the one with the five smooth stones and the slingshot and the nine-foot giant that he killed. And, and it showed his courage and his faith. But he was also a man after God's own heart, tender with a passion for God that showed him a lot of the psalms that he wrote and that he sang for their worship times together. And he had courage and, and, and action that he acted on. He was a leader who magnetically attracted other men to himself, men of passion and courage and faith. And he was a victorious warrior. He was a ruling king who unified all Israel with the capital at Jerusalem. He put down all their enemies. He brought success and expansion of peace and riches. And it was a good time to be king and a good time to be under King David in the nation of Israel. But then there's Mephibosheth. And I have it on good authority that his friends who knew him best really called him Bo. Because <laughs> it's a lot easier to say. <laughs> so what do we find out about Bo? Well, Bo was also royalty. He's the son of Prince Jonathan, which makes him the grandson of King Saul of Israel. We discover as we hear the story that he was disabled. It says a couple of times he was lame in both his feet. Well, what happened? Well, when the news came that both Saul and Jonathan, father and grandfather, had been killed in a battle on the same day, there was confusion and panic. And so his nanny picked him up, and as she was leaving where they were, she fell on some stone steps. And when she fell, the child was crushed under her, and his legs were both crushed. So he was not able to walk. Perhaps he used crutches, whatever we know. He was not able to work in any way. So he was dependent on others to provide his needs. Like saying with, with Amiel, it was an act of benevolence. Somebody else had to care for him. But he's really far away. He was distant from the king in the centers of power. Now, why is that? Well, in the ancient times, kings would, when they came to power, consolidate their power by killing off everybody who was kin to their predecessor. So if, if you were kin to the predecessor, you knew what was coming. It wasn't going to be good. And so probably out of fear, uh, uh, Mephibosheth moved far, far away. But we also see something internal about Mephibosheth, don't we? That he was disregarded both by himself and by others. They forgot about him. You heard in there, he refers to himself as roadkill. He calls himself a dead dog. He's lost all sense of identity and purpose and position. Two very different men. Now, how do they get together? They're operating in different spheres. They're totally disconnected. Well, the key is in verse 1 and in verse 3, where David says, who is left of, of Jonathan's family that I can show him kindness, or verse 3, God's kindness. And the key is for Jonathan's sake. You see, Jonathan, Saul's son, became David's best friend. 
became best friends when they're a teenager because it's just really cool to have a friend as a teenager who killed a giant, cut off his head, and brought it to your dad. And so they became great friends. And John began to know very early that David was God's man. He would have Israel's throne. And he repeatedly warned David about his father Saul's plots to kill David. The last time they were together, David promised or covenanted with Jonathan that he would always care for his family, for for those who were going to be out of his family. And so here's what what Jonathan said when they were together. He said, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. And Jonathan made David swear by his love for him. Well, Jonathan, they covered together and David made that promise. Here's what we need to understand. David doesn't act because of Mephibosheth. He acts because of Jonathan. The kindness and mercy shown Mephibosheth was solely on the base of another's life and action and merit. David initiates his mercy because of a promise that he made in advance to love Jonathan and his family. Now what about us? How do we ever get to God? We too are disconnected from God. We operate in different spheres. He is holy. We are not. And we are separated from Him, disconnected from Him, and looking for identity and purpose. Let's understand this. You can write this down. God's present mercy is built on the base of His eternal covenant love. God's present mercy to you and me is built on the base of His eternal covenant love. Every kindness you and I experience from God has deeper roots. We are, all of us, sinners or rebels against God. And God the King is fully just to punish us, but He acts in mercy toward us on the basis of the perfect life sacrificial death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus. So Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says this, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, for us, in our place, as a substitute taking our place. But we can go even deeper than that. All that happened with Jesus in the that we see was foretold in the Older Testament. So when God said, I'm going to make a new covenant with you, here's what he says. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. I, no tense, I have loved you. I've been loving you with an everlasting love already. Now you've got to go even further back. And you go back to the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve had rebelled against God. And you find that in that moment, God says, I'm not going to leave you under my punishment and under wrath and under death, I'm going to provide a way to life. So that Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says this. It says that it says that God set in place salvation before the foundation of the world. So what that means is that if you're here and you've entered into that relationship with God through repentance and faith, God, your heavenly Father and King, decided to love you in advance. In advance of one single breath, not because of your strength, not because of your morality, not because of your Sunday morning religiosity, none of those things at all, but on the basis of another's life, action, and merit, 
on the basis of Jesus Christ. When you enter a relationship with God by repentance from sin and faith toward Jesus Christ, you step into a story that has already been going. And its most basic, fundamental truth is this, that you can say, God loves me. You can say, God loves me. So the basis of all that God actually moves toward us, the base of his mercy toward us is God's love. Now that would be great just to stop there, but there are implications of that. There's even more that we can see as we walk through the story together. Because you are loved by God, and that's the reality of who you are, he's your father and, and you are loved by him. Because you are loved by God, I wish us first of all that you have been pursued on purpose. You've been pursued on purpose. Verse 5 says that, that David sent to get to get Mephibosheth. He sent people searching for Mephibosheth. Now that was quite a journey because Lodabar was on the far frontier of Israel. It wasn't an easy trip, but the king's command initiated the search. God pursues you to save you. Jesus said it this way. He said, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. And no one comes to God unless the Father who sent me draws him. He's been pursuing. He's been coming after you. Some of you were raised in a home where God was adored. Others in a home where God was cursed. Some of you kind of done the church thing your whole life. Others for you, churches have been kind of, maybe it was kind of a, a weddings and funerals kind of deal. Uh, and, and some of you have followed after God, and that was kind of the, the trajectory of your life. Others you ran for a long, long time. It's really important for us to understand this. That from a spiritual standpoint, your spiritual background doesn't change your standing before God. If we're sinners before God and we need rescue, so you can be lost and not know it. And it's just as easy to split hell wide open from the church house as it is from the crack house. But if you don't have a relationship with him, so God pursues you. He pursues you. He comes after you. That friend who shared the gospel with you over and over again, that was God pursuing you. That circumstance of pain that almost crushed you, you didn't think you could make it unless God did something, that was God pursuing you. That sense of your conscience of guilt, that I've got to get something right or more in balance here, that was God pursuing you. The awareness that you couldn't save or fix yourself, that was God pursuing you. To see the sweetness and the beauty of Jesus, that was all God pursuing you. He pursues you. There's no place too near, no place too far, no religion too safe, no pit too deep, no shadow too dark, no sin or rebellion too ugly for God to come after you and pursue you. It's what he does. Even after we come to know him, he, David writes another psalm, he says, if, I, if I'm seated in heaven, if I make my bed in hell, even there you are with me. He comes after you to pursue you. Like one shepherd after one lost sheep, he will pursue you because he loves you. Because you you are loved by God. You've been pursued on purpose, but also you've been called by name. When Mephibosheth came in, David didn't just say, Hey man, what's up? No. He said, Mephibosheth. He called him by name. It was intensely personal. Jesus 
called that despised tax collector uh, Zacchaeus out of a tree by name. He called dead Lazarus out of his own tomb by name. Jesus is the good shepherd, and he said this. He said, the shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Hear the voice that is there. Hearing your name called out of a relational connection of love is so much different than hearing your name called by some kind of automated robot. I never hit a home run in the league. But one time, I really wallowed one. I got a hold of one, and I just hit that thing. had a nice little ting. And it went sailing toward the center field fence. And it rose and rose. And I dropped the bat again to walk. And people began to kind of ooh and ah around it. And there's kind of yelling and screaming. And out of all those voices that were there that day, the one voice I heard above all the others was my mother. Oh, David. <laughs> that was decades ago. My mom's been gone for nine years. I can still hear that voice. Because you hear a voice of love. It's clear, it's personal. Maybe recently, maybe maybe a long time ago. If you've come to him, here's what's happened. The eternal God of the ages, the king of the angel armies, the one who named a billion, billion stars by name and called them all out to shine. He knows your name. He knows you. He calls you to himself because you're loved by God. by name. You've been accepted by grace. David immediately accepts Mephibosheth for who he is and what he had without regard for his resume or background or performance or abilities. Any possible rebellion is forgiven and Mephibosheth is warmly accepted and received by the king. And so in verse 7, David says to him, do not fear. I will show you kindness. Saved by grace, not by performance. 
You are sustained by grace, not by performance. You are shaped by grace, not by performance. You are secured eternally by grace, not by performance. Remember, God does not love and approve some future, better, more together version of you. God, your Heavenly Father, loves and approves you right now. He loves you. your Father loves you. You've been restored completely. David, fully and without condition, restores to Mephibosheth all that is rightfully his as royalty in Israel. His position, everything that was his father's inheritance, his everything he left behind when he ran away, his property, his servants, his income. David says in verse 7 again, I will restore you all the land of your father Saul. There's a pauper who had had no income, so he has no lack. The homeless guy has a place and no fear. The uncertain guy has a future. It's all there. He's set free from his past story. Jesus delights to restore. Remember what, what the father did in the story of the prodigal son when the son came home, put the robe around him and ring on his finger and shoes on his feet, signaled that his son was restored to his position with full access to all of his father's riches. Jesus comes to save you, to rescue you. He plans to restore you completely to who he always meant you to be. He says he gives you a position. As soon as you trust him, you're seated with him in the heavenly realms. He intends to restore everything that sin has distorted or that Satan has robbed. He means to set you free from your past story so there's no more shame or guilt or condemnation. He promises he'll give you everything you need for life and godliness to meet your every need according to his riches in glory and to grant you a share of the inheritance of Christ himself. So you're a son or daughter. Romans 8 says this. It says the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things. If you're His, this is who you are. This is what you have. This is what He's promised. He's going to restore you because you are loved by your Father, pursued on purpose, called by name, accepted by grace, restored completely, and welcomed as family. David could have handled this as a cold judicial hearing. He could have wrapped the gavel clapped his hands and just moved on and been done with it. But he invited Mephibosheth to his table. This wasn't about legal duty, but a personal family relationship with Mephibosheth. It says, you shall eat at my table always. Jesus had a tendency to eat meals with people that made religious people nervous. Why? Because meals welcomed people near. The prodigal story ends with a party, remember? Let's eat and celebrate. My son was dead, but now he's he's alive. The whole story of the Bible ends with a wedding feast, celebrating around a meal. The point is not the event. The point is not the menu. The point is the relationship to enjoy. I wish you could have known my mamma Cristola. Yeah, that was really her name. My other grandmother's name was Sola. <laughs> we have Greek somewhere in our background. I'm not sure where. 
grandma for solo, she made all our big family meals. So we come in their big old house, there'd be a, there'd be a plate of ham, and there'd be some mashed potatoes with way, way, way too much pepper on them, and there'd be, there'd be fresh-cut uh, tomatoes and cantaloupe, and this whole spread. And right in the middle of the table, every time, this huge crystal bowl, and the crystal bowl was overflowing with cheese puffs. there would be kids there. For her, it wasn't about the menu. It was about the relationship. If you've repented of sin and trusted Christ alone, you are reconciled. Once an enemy, an outsider, now you are a son or a daughter of the king. Your family, you're seated at the king's table. You're enjoying his feast and his provisions, but mostly his presence because that's where you belong. It's who you Child of God, would you hear this? This is your gospel. This is what God gives you through Jesus. Not because we deserve it or earn it, but by grace. It's all free. You are loved by God. This is what your heavenly father thinks when he thinks about you. Oh, there's my son. There's my daughter. That's the one I pursued and called and accepted and welcomed and restored. That's the one. That is mine. Would you taste and see our Lord is good. He's so good toward us. So what do you do with this? Mephibosheth did. He said he paid homage. He worshipped. So we worship. We see Jesus made more beautiful than we thought he was. And he humbled himself. Who am, who am I? That changed everything. Every day, Mephibosheth came to the king's table, and every day he was nourished by mercy. It wasn't the menu, it was the heart. He was reminded every day, oh, this is who my king is. He's a good father. Oh, this is who I am. I am loved by him. So here's the bottom line truth. Get this. When your soul is stunned and satisfied by God's mercy, your whole life will be shaped your soul is stunned and satisfied by God's mercy, your whole life will be shaped by, remember, you are what you eat. What you think about God's most important thing about you, what you think about what God thinks when he thinks about you, may be transformative when you realize this is what he means. Some of you here this morning, you're here that for the very first time. You never dreamed there was a God like this who knows your your brokenness and your mess and your distance. And this message this morning is a part of his pursuit. And I want to urge you to stop running and turn around and see him. What you're going to see is his arms are open and welcome to you. Some others of you are here this morning and yeah, you've walked with Jesus for a long time. And on your best days, this seems right and you can amen it. But then there are the other days. The days you've blown it with your family, your spouse, kids, with the dog, at work, your act is definitely not together. And the truth be known, maybe you walk in and you can do this whole Christian thing in your sleep. You know how to do it on Sundays and other days of the week. Maybe you're kind of bored and it's been a long time since your heart was really stirred by this. And at night when it's quiet and you put your head on the pillow, whispers come to say, just give it up. You're never going to be able to get this together. Maybe you see God with his arms folded and frowning. Can I just point you to the very last verse you read, verse 13? So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem where he ate always at the king's table. 
Now he was lame in both his feet. Still struggling. Still broken. Still limited. Still weak. Still dependent. Still needy. And still at the king's does not change your reservation to the feast with the king. This is the mercy and the grace we feast on. I love what Dallas Willard says. He said, it is saints who consume the most grace, not sinners. We come to the gospel feast every day, loved, pursued, called, accepted, restored, welcomed. And here's what we find out. The king never, ever runs out of mercy. 